1: Again, the site is Patreon. dot com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, you know, the other thing is like, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's so many different issues that pop up in this whole discussion. I mean, one of them is, you know, going back to this whole idea of us wanting to make nature behave the way we want it to and behave mechanistically. You know, it's this whole idea of you take a fire. Dependent ecology like in California and you decide that fires are inconvenient and you don't want them and you want the what you really want is you want the forests to be this ideal abstract thing that just sit there and be, be it's like just sit there and be a forest. Just just sit there and be a forest. Don't burn, don't do you that. Know, just that's what we want. We want you to just sit there and be a pretty forest and the the fire part of of your ecology that's inconvenient for us, so we're not gonna do that anymore. So you just sit there and be a forest. Right? Yeah. My ideal, abstract you know, thing of a bunch of trees to just sit there and it never changes. This is this is the way that conservationists almost think about it, right? That this is like that we're, what we're quote conserving is this ideal abstract thing. Instead of a dynamic, ever changing ecosystem. And so, you know, whereas permaculture wants to go off and embrace the idea that landscapes are constantly in change and flux and motion, especially ones that have very huge dynamic processes like, you know, fire based ecologies and so forth. So there's one part to it right there. The second is like seeing her thinking about, yeah, the way that they, most of these, you know, paper companies work is they, They don't want to go through and do any kind of complexity of sustainable harvest. They just want to go in and plant huge, you know, take places that have been um, clear cut and plant pine plantations and let them grow for exactly like 40 years, and come back and just mow the whole thing down again, right? They they don't want that. It is you you have to actually go over to people who are doing sustainable, quote, sustainable forestry to have somebody whose way of interacting with the forest is thinning or anything other than pretty much, you know, clear-cutting. And it's still happening a lot. I'm working with several people right now who, you know, right next to their property, these big timber companies are coming in and they're clear-cutting because it's still their management regime even though it's, it's so destructive. So, you know, both of those things just kind of popped up as you're talking your way through that. It's like, <laughs> you know, we, you, I, I know the way that that a lot of these paper companies um, are doing it. They're they're going off and they're 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 hiring timber companies to just grow these, you know, monoculture pine, pine plantations, and then pulp it all down, you know, cut it all down in a clear cut, and then pulp it all down with this chemical, you know, witch's brew, and create this shiny white glossy paper. Um, and that's, that's what's going on still. So
0: I, I want to as much as um, I'm on a tangent upon the tangent, I guess. I, I don't know. I, and that is that um, about five or six months ago, somebody sent me a physical uh, note and, and it was a card, I believe and in the card there was a check for a hundred bucks, made out to me, mm-hmm. and it said, um, uh, "Paul," uh, I, and I can't remember. It was something like, "Paul, you're awesome and amazing." Blah, blah, blah. We, and then uh, we need because we're trying to get rocket mass heaters here. We we're like working with the local, you know, uh, government stuff, and and it's like you know what we could use is. If rocket mass heaters had a different name, something something that they would that, that the regulators would like better, something that people whom you're trying to tell about it would like better. And, and along those lines, the funny thing is is that there's this uh, YouTube uh, channel uh, that I, I watch. They come out with a new uh, thing every Monday. And I, I generally watch it while hitting the right arrow button a lot to skip over the parts I don't care about. So I make this hour-long thing be like 20 minutes. But um, when I had a draft copy of the book, because I, I, their thing is all about Teslas and Tesla cars. And so mm. I sent them a draft of the book, and they wrote back and said, my book is shit, and one of the reasons they gave why my book is shit is because this example I give of a here uses fossil fuels. And um, I I wrote back saying no, <laughs> but but, but uh, the the thing is is that it's like okay clearly they didn't read the book. I mean they wrote back a long thing, big analysis, hating the book all the way. And it's like, basically what I got back is that it's like, okay, these guys want to write a book that says something different than what my book says. And they're angry that my book doesn't say what their non-existent book would say. That's mostly what it was. But they didn't read about what a rocket mass heater is because they just, I think what they did is they assumed that it runs on rocket fuel. Ah. Because it's called a rocket mass heater. Mm -hmm. And, um so i can kind of when this when i got this letter i could kind of relate and then the problem was is that i said to aside. i refused to cash the check until i had done the thing that they'd asked for because i felt like that was actually a good thing to ask for so i've started about a month ago i started the thread actually i think jen started it she came in and every once in a while jen says all right let's let's fix what you're not fixing and and so and she helped a lot with the Kickstarter. Just she, she took off like a month from the boot camp to help me get the Kickstarter done. Mm-hmm. And um, but this was one of the things. And it's like, okay, let's let's get this done and we'll cash that check. So started the thread. What's a better name for a rocket mass heater? And there's a bunch of people who were like, It's too late, that ship has sailed, or whatever. And I was like, No, this is, you know, a fun little experiment. And so now I'm gonna come back to the trees that we're just now talking about. And, and I threw out probably a dozen different names, and a bunch of people had a lot of fun things too, but I came up with something that I think is the big win. And it's like not a different name for rocket mass heaters exactly, but a rocket mass heater would fit inside of a scope of possible heaters that would be called zero-carbon heaters. Hmm. And the reason is, is that of the of, because of the forest fires. If I go out and I get wood that would otherwise end up in a uh, a wildfire, or foresters would go out and cut it down and put it into a big pile and set the pile on fire in January. Um, That's burning all of that and they call it fuels reduction and that's putting it up into the atmosphere as smoke. Oh, so, so much smoke. Like, we have forest fire season, which is smoky, and then we have January, which is smoky because of all these piles of wood that that are set on fire, you know, to prevent forest fires. And so I am proposing the idea that if you use wood that would otherwise be burned, either in a wildfire or to prevent a wildfire, is it not fair to say that it's zero carbon? I mean, this isn't even contemplating the part where the carbon of the tree is already in the carbon cycle of our atmosphere. It will eventually break down into CO2.
1: So uh, yeah, okay, since you're going down this this little, I'll I'll, I'll comment in because let say if you do it right, it's actually not just zero carbon; it's carbon negative. Um, and um, yeah, I'm actually part of the of the zero carbon working group um, for sustainable buildings, uh, and so I have a whole discussion about this whole thing and all the the carbon calculators and all that sort of jazz. We could talk about that for hours, but I've been arguing that um, rocket mass heaters are a carbon negative. Um, a technology and and the reason is that um, you know just a quick version of it is that um Pretty much all the carbon that comes into a tree, people who aren't familiar with with this, you need to think of trees as precipitating out of the air more than growing up out of the ground because the vast majority of the bulk of the tree actually precipitates out of the air. Um, The carbon that forms the backbone lattice structure is actually pulled out of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's not being pulled out of the soil, for people who don't understand that. It's like you know, you, you, it, if you're thinking that, like, all the carbon is pulled up out of the soil to make the structure of the tree, no, no, it's actually precipitated out of the air. So, yes, this is why all the people looking at climate change and, you know, and, and carbon sequestration are looking at um, trees as a fast pathway to, you know, getting carbon out of the air and into a into a non-atmospheric structure. So if we do this, and in the process, the trees from photosynthesis are feeding the bacteria and the fungi in the soil, they down there, the, the, the sugars and starches being set down there are having something else going. All the leaves and the organic matter the trees are dropping onto the soil are being decomposed by syphrophytic organisms, and then there's other bacteria and fungi that are gluing them back together into soil organic matter. Now that soil organic matter is pseudo stable. It can stay there according if you keep the if you keep the, um, the, the the plants on top, you keep it going, then you have sequestered that in a dynamic fashion. It's slowly breaking down but constantly being replaced. As long as you keep the ecosystem there, that ecosystem has become very carbon negative. It's sucking carbon out of the air and putting it into biomass and into organic matter in the soil. And um, when we take and harvest a small amount of the wood off of that and combust it in an extremely efficient combustion, all we're doing is we're putting back a small portion of the carbon dioxide that the tree sucked out of the, the atmosphere. But we're not putting back all of it by any means. In its life cycle, that tree has fed bacteria and fungi, which have increased full organic matter, therefore, even if you were to burn the entire tree, um, if you were to burn it efficiently, the process would have been net carbon negative. So, um, and since we are burning at such a high temperature and we're burning without pollution, we are being, it's, it's basically a carbon negative entire system. Uh, and I'm about to start making that argument to uh, some of the, the, the carbon... Uh, zero carbon uh, folks, where we're talking about, I'm talking about wanting to certify buildings. I want to put rocket mass heaters in, as being zero carbon, and I'm going to start making this argument to them. I think I'm going to win because I think I can show that from these dynamics.
0: I, I think, I think you you can win it too. I'm, mm-hmm. I like this. I I think this is a great
1: way. Now, um, by the way, I do like I do like the idea of uh, of. Zero carbon uh, Heater I like that Because It's a huge Selling point Right now And it's very Marketable Um, And For a number Of reasons And I might actually Steal that and, uh, and, and, and say that what we're doing is we're, we're using a zero carbon or carbon negative, uh, heating system. Um, just to push the point, because that's been the big objection that I've got from places like the International Living Futures Institute, who says, oh no, you can't use combustion in buildings if you want to be a living building challenge. Building because that's putting carbon up into the air and causing pollution. And I'm pushing back saying, oh no, it's not, not if you do it right.
0: And there, and and there's the rub, doing it right. Yes. And and it's kind of like, I I kind of feel like uh, the idea is is that the zero carbon heater is a classification, as opposed to a it's specific to design. And so there's you know there are things there are things that are being developed that would no longer be able to be called rocket mass heaters. Yep. At the same time, there's a bunch of stuff that's being called a rocket mass heater that really isn't. Mm-hmm. and and so i I kind of feel like um, uh, to say it's possible for a rocket mass heater to be a zero carbon heater now i think I think another thing to point out would be what if what if you heat your home with nothing but let's say junk mail and and amazon boxes <laughs> Then is that I think i mean is that another classification I mean that's it could be uh something where uh or or let's even add in the twigs that natural the twigs and branches that naturally fall off the trees in your yard yeah I, I mean basically it's a zero delivery system right I mean mm-hmm. the The only things that you burn are the um, products that many would consider to be waste. Those those twigs and branches that fall off your trees, those are oftentimes, by most people, considered to be waste and must be. And and they used to just put them into a garbage can until the green bin was provided. And uh, some homes would make a pile and set them on fire along with leaves from the trees. And uh, and that kind of thing, uh, and then of course nowadays our junk mail is dramatically reduced, but I think that a lot of people have this cardboard that is coming from uh, uh, Amazon or other you know entities, and uh, and then it comes with other packaging. But I kind of feel like sometimes we get these pa- this packaging that is stuff that we cannot combust. But I I personally feel like. I would rather save it and burn it to heat my home in the winter than like when the plastic stuff arrives there are certain ways to recycle that or even take the cardboard and recycle it. Is burning it here have a lower environmental impact than taking it to a recycling center?
1: It's a good question. I think you'd have to do some some, some calculating and probably make a few assumptions in your calculations to try to come to a conclusion.
0: That's true. That's true because it's a life system, is it not? Yes. Yeah. The word eco or environmentally friendly or whatever, those are so incredibly vague. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're getting into complexity science the moment we start to contemplate this.
1: Yes, I'm wondering if the if the play, if the people playing at home now have like a scorecard of how many like how many like dis, you know dis, dis, uh discursions we've we've popped deep into the stack now, um you know how how many yeah. tangents have we gone off and on and tangents on tangents by now? But well, when we agreed to do this, <laughs> that was one of the rules: is that it's totally Ab- awesome <laughs> to do that. Absolutely,
0: yes. <laughs> So yeah. we get to we get to go on as many tangents as we feel
1: like. Mhm Okay. Well, so I'm glad yeah, we had this
0: chat. A, little a, few,
1: a few secants and co as well, yes. <laughs>
0: oh, boo, boo. That was <laughs> oh, man. All right. I want to now talk about what's on page 14. Do you have anything before page 14 that you would like to address?
1: Ooh, let's just see. um. You know, I, I've always found it kind of interesting this uh, the he, uh, in the very beginning of 2.3, where he's talking about the law of return, he comes down to this thing that says, you know, he says, uh, put the, putting it in the form of a directive or policy statement, he said that every object must responsibly provide for its replacement. And I've, I found that kind of interesting. In other words, he, he's basically looking at it, and again, it's in my system's mind really finds this interesting. The idea... That what if we we took that criteria and actually applied it to all of the designs that we create as humanity? Right? We did that audit on it. This thing that we're about this this widget that we're about to produce is it going to provide for its own replacement? Is it going? What's its energy audit? What's it? You know, look at it from a life cycle standpoint and see what it does. And what its use is and, you know, when we, we build the thing, what is, what are the outcomes of, of its use? Uh, is it consumptive or is it productive? And, you know, how will its life cycle end? How will its nutrients be returned into the larger ecosystem? So to me, it's a very interesting question and something that um, it, it is, it is something we should teach all of our designers to be asking as they're just thinking about building any widget, you know, that we, we are asking them to build. Have you ever read the book Ecotopia? I believe I have. It's been a while, though. Yeah, I I read it an extremely long
0: time ago. Uh like I must have been like eighteen or maybe even younger when I read it. And then I try I, I read it I started to read it again and I never finished. Um um I don't know, a couple of years ago. I think it was one of the times that I was um incapacitated. I know that when I was on my back and in extreme pain, I desperately wished that I had an audiobook of it. Because what I would do um is that I played an audiobook constantly because I could only sleep in fits of two hours. But if an audiobook was playing, then I could concentrate on the audiobook which would help to distract me from the incredible pain. Hmm. And I might happen to slip off to sleep for a couple of hours. And then I would wake up and the audio book is still going and then I can concentrate on the audiobook and then maybe get a couple more hours of sleep. It was a miserable existence, but the audiobooks really helped. And I, uh, so I would end up having to listen to an audiobook five or six times <laughs> in the hopes that, okay, now I've listened to probably 95% of the book in different segments in different mm-hmm. um, and different orders. And so uh, I listened to Sacre Blue by uh, Christopher Moore in this fashion and it's like I can tell you about parts of the book but I didn't get to enjoy the book in the order that the artist wanted me to <laughs> and I feel bad about that I can't possibly enjoy it now but I uh, I remember putting a shout out on Permes to say because uh, there's no audio book of Ecotopia, and I, I said uh, could somebody like like read the book into a recording so I could effectively listen to it as an audiobook. Because I, when I was on my back, I had I, I had more than a hundred people uh, posted that thread about my problem and give advice and support. And I think there was like at least six different physicians offering different bits of advice. One one physician. Offered to fly me to Texas at his expense to get a treatment for cervical radiculopathy. Um, the only the thing I said is I can't because the the whole thing about being upright at all is like five times more painful than the brutal pain that I feel on my back. I to for me to go to Missoula to see a doctor is a horrifying brutal experience. The idea of getting on a plane for hours is more than I am willing to do. I mean like to do it, somebody had to put me out and then I don't think, I think the plane, the, the, the plane ride would suddenly become 10 times more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Now let's move the giant guy <laughs> who's passed out uh, onto the plane. And it's like, I don't, I can't imagine that being good for anybody. Okay, the, the, the thing is is that the book Ecotopia has this, these beautiful values to it. And um, I, I, I want to propose an idea which I know will never happen, but I'll say it because I just like to say it. And that is, hey, Alan, when we're all done doing the page-by-page book review of this book, how about if we do Ecotopia? And then you'll say, oh sure, knowing that we will probably never get to the end
1: of this book. So what does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? Let's just, let's just we'll just do that for an encore. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, but when I when I think of things like this, I think of the things the things in and how how that so greatly influenced me back then that when I start to move down permaculture road that even though I haven't read the book in such a very long time, it still influences me. And then, uh, on top of that, um, there's the fifth sacred thing. Uh, and, and, and it's kind of funny because Starhawk is the author of that. And, uh, I think she's, she's quite purple. And she also is a big social justice warrior. And, um, yeah. so, uh, I believe that standing next to most purple people, I, I look very dark brown, but when I stand next to um, a, a variety of people that are authentically dark brown, I look day-glow purple. So I kind of feel like in the purple to brown spectrum, I'm kind of in the middle. Um, but uh, I, I found out that she was coming to Missoula. And so I wrote to her and I said, hey, uh, I, would, I think it would be cool if we could meet. But of course, I'm probably maybe she has no idea that I exist, you know, kind of a thing. Or if she does, she thinks I'm some sort of monster or something. And so, I never heard back from. Her. Hmm. But but I I do want to go on record saying, I enjoyed the book, and uh, I think I I really love the idea, of conveying permaculture to people, in fiction. Hmm. And I gotta say. There are things about the book that I thought were weird. Like there is some weird sex stuff in there that it's like I can't.
1: <laughs> but yes, there there are a few things that are a little a little bit out there. I have read it, um, so there, there are a couple. I enjoyed things. the
0: thing about the bees hmm. uh, in the book. And there were so many things I, I thoroughly enjoyed, and of course, the thing about how people uh, in Akito- or not in Ecutopia, I'm sorry, in in uh, uh, San Francisco. During uh, this book, during during the fifth sacred thing, how they they couldn't agree on shit, <laughs> and they had all their little crazy factions fighting against each other, and it was so political, and it was you know, but uh, and then of course the things that they say about these other things where everything's banned, these other these other areas uh, far away, where everything is banned, and of course uh, that means that the the, the common people will be deeply punished if they do a thing that's banned, but it's well known that the wealthy people do that thing all the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know? And it's like, uh, in fact, you know, it, it seems to be a, uh, a breeding ground for perversions. And I kind of feel like, what a brilliant book. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so, hats off to Starhawk for such a magnificent piece of art with so much educational and wacky material hey are you ready to go on with section 2.3 oh wait i was i was suggesting page 14 yes
1: yeah, so i guess the one other thing i would say just on that little quote i had highlighted on um you know everything must uh, responsibly provide for its own replacement there's an interesting little note that uh mollison puts after that and he basically says that um There is a penalty to be paid for those who break this law, Uh, and um, you know. I think that's that's uh, an interesting little thing. It says, you know, he says basically, nature has extreme penalties for those who would break such laws, and for their descendants, and for their neighbors. Hmm. So, you know, I think what we're seeing today is that some of those penalties have come due. We start looking at the environmental destruction that our overall approach to human infrastructure has created.
0: I kind of wonder if a good thing to point out is is that uh, where we are, where there is a problem, because this whole chapter is to talk about working with nature instead of against it. Mm-hmm. It, it would appear that our human nature is to go towards this problem. And so if we're going to be permaculturalists, how do we not, rather than regulating the fuck out of it, which would probably therefore make all of permaculture illegal somehow, Mm -hmm. and I don't know how, but, you know, anytime it's like we're going to regulate more in this space, which is basically what it seems like what Mollison's advocating then instead of that, can we basically talk about a more luxuriant life somehow that naturally draws people away from this mess and towards something better by our standards? Mm-hmm. By permaculture standards, yeah, by I'm, I'm kind of managing curious about... human nature rather than regulating human
1: nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious with this notion of, you know, I've asked this question before when I've taught uh, introduction to permaculture classes. Because it's been very interesting. With when I taught it to people who are like environmentalists and so forth, I asked them the question. Just I said philosophically, I want to ask a question: Are humans? Um, by nature destructive? It is, is it in their human nature to be destructive to ecosystems? And I think that's a very, it's, it's a very interesting question to ask because it opens up a few assumptions. There are certain branches of the environmental movement who seem to take that as a granted, that, that humans are inherently destructive and that having them on a landscape will degrade the landscape. And I think part of the whole thing that I've, I, I, we talked about in earlier sessions was the idea that I think permaculture basically says no, that's not the case, that p- people can actually become a keystone regenerative part. And that if you look, and, and you look back at human history and you realize that there are h- many, many, many examples of people's living in that way over the course of history. It's when we sort of, took a left-hand turn in Albuquerque and decided to do this thing like plow-based agriculture. And then all of the, the, the certain parts of civilization that have arisen out of that, that we started to get to patterns that we are enculturated into that are pretty deeply destructive. So my suspicion is that the answer to are humans inherently destructive is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of no. Um, And, um, but are humans that are enculturated into our current consumptive narrative inherently destructive that the answer is somewhere closer to yes. So first
0: of all, Thank you for the Bugs Bunny reference. I kind of needed that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, uh, next up, I, I do think that there is this odd thing where a group of people do seem to romanticize war and destruction. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's considered cool, awesome, amazing. And then, of course, there are elements of human nature that are like the whole thing where I need to hear my opinion come out of your mouth and everybody else's mouth. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, I will be frustrated that I do not have the might to make it right, with the potential exception of the few people that do have the might to make it, quote, right
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and so there's this twisted humanity thing. Um I I believe that our function here is to effectively be gardeners. That, that that that's like that's what we're made to be. And so I think that there is an element of nature that when we do garden that we feel this thing within us being fed, and mm-hmm. and we feel like suddenly we have a purpose and a function, and we belong. Um, I know, and. and I I want to go off on 47 different tangents at once from
1: that. (laughs) Yes. I I would make one small comment, which is that, you know, you you, you mentioned that there are people who will romanticize the destructive, warlike thing, and then there are people who will also go off and overly romanticize the hunter-gatherer, you know, indigenous experience. And I guess – The more I've read, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that human existence is just kind of messy and that, you know, that um, we we should not try to overly romanticize a hunter-gatherer, immediate return hunter-gatherer, or indigenous peoples or whatever. But when you look at it on balance, I think that the if you were basically just trying to use a, a, a criteria of, are the people happy and healthy, that when you go down the road of working with nature instead of against it and being cooperative instead of, you know, going to war with your neighbors, that you come a lot closer on average to having a happy and healthy um, group of people, you know. And so... You know, I, I think that's that's fair to say, and so I think that while we shouldn't overly romanticize uh, the, the the gardening side of things because it has its it has its challenges and so forth, I think that if your goal is to have you and your children and your grandchildren be happier and healthier and you know and and have that sustainable into the future, that going in that general direction instead of uh, war and conquest and everything is defined by. Competition and conflict I think you you're going you're to come a lot closer to maybe succeeding on average
0: I guess where I'm going with all of this is I mean it's the foundation of my book it's the thing that uh, I, I believe I've been advocating for decades and mm-hmm. that is that um, here mollison is basically advocating a must. And and when he says must, then I start thinking about someone's gonna read this and they're gonna think that it's regulation. Like we're gonna we're gonna develop laws that say you, you must do this thing and, and you must for any product that you create, you're not allowed to sell it unless it comes with proof of what Mollison is stating here. And I'm kind mm. of thinking that rather than that, then what are the things that people will, with their nature, seek out and then they happen to end up at this place? Mm-hmm. And and part of me kind of thinks of the Tesla Roadster effect. And, um, and, and it's kind of like, okay, he made a – people thought electric cars were shit. He made – a fancy a, a car that was worth a million dollars sold it for a hundred thousand, and it it broke all those old myths about electric cars, and suddenly people crave that car. That's widely considered to be the best car, but you know not everybody. But it, let's say general public wise. But now there's a lot of people that are heading in the general direction of that car, or electric cars, it has caused change. But we didn't make a law saying people are required to get an electric car or anything like that.
1: No, it helped change the
0: narrative. So in which case, I guess where I'm going with that is like, okay, well, what do we do? Like, let's say in the world of food systems and permaculture food. And one thing I've advocated for a while is like, I hope that all the food you find in Safeway is permaculture food someday not because the farmers are on an eco-kick but entirely because the farmers found that there were greater profits when doing it the permaculture way but even more than that what if we had systems where it's kind of like people who have cancer can choose to get conventional treatment or they can go to a husk Site. Um, So permaculture food and housing and and an environment that has like less than 3% of the toxins that would be available in their home where they got cancer. And then maybe the car, you know, does the cancer go away? And they're going to be fed of food, which is going to come from uh, rich soil and polyculture, which perhaps. Um, uh, feeds them better, nourishes them better, and also has a you know a, a, like less than three percent of the toxins that come in organic food that that they could buy at their home. Um, now, if we've got this, like let's say it's a great success, it's I think it's the Tesla Roadster effect. It's it's people are going to be like, I want that food too. Further, what if? There's people growing that food right next door, and those greedy bastards are just eating it themselves. And they're not sharing it, even though they know your sister has cancer. And it's like, no, they just—they're just hoarding it, and they're eating it. And if you go and you try and buy it, it you know, blah 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 blah. The the, the the key is, what do we do? What what do we do that gets people to, you know, it nudges their nature into this direction instead of trying to force compliance, which then just ends up being abused, and then you end up with the opposite result.
1: Yeah, and I understand where you're coming from with that, although I, I read Mollison here differently in the must, where he says every object must responsibly provide for its own replacement. To me, this is a statement of the nature of ecological systems it's um in other words it isn't a must as in i am telling you you must because it is a regulation or requirement i'm telling you that this is the way that natural systems work and that if you don't do this that there will that there will be consequences not from me or but from the natural system that you're working with so it's an interesting thing to me that Um, that there is a rhetorical technique used today when somebody says um, something along the lines of, um, if you do this thing, here will be the consequence. And somebody else says, well, you know, now you're threatening me. And I'm like, (laughs) no, that was not a threat. That was like saying, you're dancing on the edge of the cliff, And if you fall off of the cliff and fall for a thousand feet onto rocks, you almost certainly will not survive that. Oh, well, now you're threatening me.
0: Yeah, right, right.
1: And I mean, no, this is the way that natural systems work. This is the, this is this is how. This is what happens when your biology intersects with the reality of deceleration trauma from hitting rocks at that velocity, right? It's just—it's not a threat. It's a statement about the nature of the planet you're living on, that if you fall off a cliff like that, you're probably not going to survive. There's nothing of a threat. It's more of a warning about the way in which the system works. And to me, what Mollison is giving us here is a warning about the way the system works. He's or saying
0: you, you could just be quiet and let Darwin Darwin's theory you know play out in front of you
1: True, but here I think Mollison is attempting to be nice to us and warn us that there is a way that if we don't do this, that the penalties will come due at some point in the future. And that's, I think, that's true. what he's saying, you know, that the, you, aren't, you aren't going to escape the consequences of, of doing this because the consequences will come back around and, and visit you and your descendants and your neighbors is what he's saying. And that's the way I read that. Okay.
0: Uh, okay. I like your interpretation much better than mine. I, um, I'm kind of thinking that we need to finish everything before page 14. Mm-hmm. Then the next time we start recording, we start with page 14. So the a pretty picture on uh, figure 2.1? Oh, please, yes. That's, that's <laughs> For this whole chapter, this is the part I like best, are, the, are these beautiful pictures in here.
1: But that's... That's kind of what I liked in the last chapter, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and I think there's some interesting things in that that we, we'll need some time to unpack because it has to do, again, with what he started the chapter with, which is thermodynamics and the flows of energy and um, and the way that natural systems work with that. And there's a reason I think he's bringing it up again right here. And, you know, he is he's talking about – is Applying Laws and Principles to Design, and he brings up this really important point at the very beginning of 2.3, which is basically, you know, we're talking about when you – he basically says, when you're dealing with mechanistic systems, this is when you're closer to being able to work with laws, right? You're closer to the law of gravity, this sort of thing, which is about my cliff analogy, of, you know, falling off the cliff. Uh, you're, you're closer to that. When you get into working with organic systems and ecological systems, now he's saying we are in the realm of principles, that this is the way these things tend to work, and these are the general strategy, types of strategies that are going to be successful, right? So he said in the first chapter, we have the ethics that tell it and so forth, and he's arguing from the big picture down to specifics, and that's something that I think Paul, you know, I've talked about before. This is sort of, you know, where a set. Goes at it the opposite way around, he just starts with the starts with the techniques so here's what we're doing, and then you can kind of back your way into the strategies and the the ethics backwards out of the way step comes at it. Mollison has decided as an intellectual exercise he's going to start in the first chapter with ethics and this big and now he's coming into this whole thing of laying out why working with biological ecological systems requires us to work with principles instead of narrowly defined laws, because really the principles will start to give us strategies, and those strategies will vary by biome, by bioregion, you know, and then the, the individual techniques and tactics will come out of that for the individual situations you're in. So he's decided in the in the flow of the book, if you're looking at this, that that's the way he's going to go. And here in Section 2.3, he's laying out his case that after ethics comes principles instead of laws because principles are the right way to deal with living systems instead of trying to, you know, do these narrowly defined laws. And then that backs us into later in this section, we'll get into the the famous Molisonian principles, you know, about working with nature instead of against it. These are these broad patterns of you know, of ways of approaching working with things. So he's making that argument here, and I think that's that's actually that's actually quite uh, interesting, and it's part of the whole reason that when he's talking about life systems, he gets into talking about energy flows and resource flows, and and how we have to work with those because we're working with you know, these circular flows and the real time of, of nutrients and the and the real time flow of energy available to us from the ecosystem if we're going to be sustainable and regenerative. So that to me is like when I'm reading this section, this is where I, I think we are in his in his unfolding of his book. And in his making the case, I think he's being very systematic in making his case for the approach that permaculture is going to take.
0: I I like that. So I think I think that we're up to page 14. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. I'm looking <laughs> to see if there's anything else in my notes. I mean, there's more of Section 2.3 beyond page
1: 14 that I want to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? It, 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 yeah. 15 and 16 are just, like, incredibly dense with things to talk about. I guess I would make one more interesting note before while we're we're talking about this, which is the the colloquial use of the word energy. And it's it's very interesting to me because when I was, I I have my PDC in person with Jeff Lawton and he picks up this use of the word energy. Um, And of course, again, as having a lot of training in physics and so forth, that word in physics has a very precise definition. And here it's being used kind of a little more broadly in an interesting way. Um, You know, it talks about catching and storing energy. When we get into the diagram, we're going to talk about that. And um, as I remember when I first started reading this, of course, I'm bringing my science brain to the door. I'm reading energy, and I'm thinking about, you're talking about water, and water is actually mass. So you're talking about, like, storing it high in the landscape. Okay, so it's got potential energy. Hmm. So... One of the things that's interesting in a lot of the permaculture literature, because I think Mollison decided to use this term a little more colloquially than the literal definition from physics, is that in some cases, when he says an energy flow, he kind of is referring to movement of physical stuff, you know, as like catching that energy. It's like, you know, that, um, uh, water i it, it, it catching water high in the landscape is catching that energy, right? Well it's 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 catching the resource and it's associated like potential energy high in the landscape. So to me, for those who may be coming at this from maybe a little more of a technical background, I always have to kind of make that distinguish you know, that distinguishment. Because um there are there are these flows. You can have a flow of a material what I call a material flow, right? It's like of of some sort of material resource you can have energy flow that's literally the flow of energy but what's interesting is that there are purely energy flows like you know, light and electromagnetic energy and radiant heat and so forth. These are truly pure energy flows. They're going through our system. Sunlight coming in is like that. But then you have these resource flows. And the resource flow, because it's made out of matter when it moves, has associated kinetic energy that can be harvested. And if you catch it in the right place, it may have potential energy that you can catch it with. And in some cases, it may have chemical stored, you know, chemical energy that we can we can use. And then there's another kind of flow that he mentions just in passing later in chapter, which is information flows. So, start talking about these patterns and thinking about catching and storing quote energy. Then you could be talking about catching and storing actually energy in the pure physics sense, or catching and storing material resources. Um, or catching and restoring material resources that have associated energy stored in them, or in sort of an abstract fashion, you can catch and store energy by catching information, right? So I would argue that Permies does that, doesn't it? It catches and stores the energy of all this discussion in the form of information, and so it's another form of catching and storing energy if you want to use this very broad definition of energy that Mollison seems to be using here. I I kind of just think of um,
0: uh, you know force and mass and Mm -hmm. work you know the 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 and when I say work I mean like when doing the math for basic physics Um, Mm -hmm. like uh, but but anyway and and I'm kind of like oh okay you're storing energy and it's like you're saying before potential energy because later you know the water will go down thanks to the power of gravity. And we'll be able to harvest that energy then. But in a different sense, it's energy in that um, how it adds a life factor to otherwise potentially dead land or relatively dead. Like yep. like the, the energy for just overall life is in, increased. And I mean that in the sense of... Um, like each, each each living thing has a certain amount of energy to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know, I, I, I think that there, as you're saying, many different ways to potentially measure the total amount of energy. And right. I think that what we seek, what do we seek by even screwing around with this, by doing this at all? And I think that we all wish to effectively live in a plethora of life and and also live in a plethora of life, that is a more magnificent form of life than the
1: other options that we see. Mm-hmm, exactly. And that's kind of why I wanted to point out that we're it's, – it's to me very interesting that Mollison ended up adopting a much more rich and broad definition of energy than, you know, you bring in the door from just physics.
0: What if we do the Tesla Roadster effect in such a way that we create our plethora of life on, say, 200 acres –
1: Mhm
0: and it is so lovely we have set we have created such a magnificent and excellent example that other people crave it as well they're like i want some of that mm-hmm. then does that not become the um first first little chip of ice nine to take over the world
1: yeah I think so, and I think that's you know, it's one of the things I, I, I think we've talked about before, which is there's, there's a certain number of people. It's a fairly small percentage who can read about a thing they've never seen before and like really envision it and get so excited about it that they'll go out and try to build it. But there's a lot of people who that's not the way they work. They need to see a real practical example, and when they do, the light bulb turns on, they get excited, and they're like, that's what I want. And now I've seen it right now i know it's possible i see what that is and so i think we're at the point now where if we need to, if we want to get you know sustainable regenerative design in in the permaculture guys over the the tipping point then we're at that point where we build out um practical examples that people can see and get excited about and that i think really helps to get us to that tipping point where it starts to accelerate. People start looking at it and going, yeah, that's exactly what I want. I want to live that way because the quality of life there is way better than this consumeristic, destructive Thing you know, we're having a lot more fun. Um, you know, I feel better. I'm not depressed. I feel connected to my ecosystem again. I get healthy food, you know, and and that sort of thing. I think that's exactly how we, you know, move the move the meter a little bit on getting adoption of something a little more sane in terms of a way of human life.
0: So. Um, <clears throat> This is that thing about the stove is hot. Some, mm-hmm. people, some people know the stove is hot because somebody else told them the stove is hot. Yep. Some people know the stove is hot because they saw a picture of somebody getting burned. hmm uh, Some people know the stove is hot because they saw somebody get burned. Yep. Some people know the stove is hot because they got burned. Some people have been burned many times, and they still don't believe the stove is hot. Yes. So, you know, it's like we'll never get a, a universal acceptance, but we don't need universal acceptance. Nope. But it, it does seem like, you know, it would be good to have – I, I, think, I think that if we can get to 10%, the rest of the way will fall into place kind of a little bit of a domino effect.
1: Yeah, and that's the, the, the folks sociologically who have studied that agree with that. They they typically say that according to what it is, the tipping point where it starts to accelerate into adoption is somewhere between 10 and 15 percent, um, according to number dynamics. Uh, you can kind of guesstimate it somewhere on average around 12 percent or so. So if we can hit that, then you're probably going to see an accelerating uh, of the adoption of. You know the, the, this, this mindset.
0: All right. Anything else for today? It, it looks no, like I by think. The time.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think we're next time we can we can talk about um, the the pretty picture on page fourteen, and then yeah. I'm sure after that we'll spend the rest of the time just talking about <laughs> the rest of section two dot three because there's an awful lot there. Yeah. Yeah,
0: If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at com where we talk about Bill Mollison, homesteading, and permaculture all, all the, time. the time.
1: Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future
0: artifacts.